We shouldn't have to survive. We need to live. We need to live. My brothers need to live. My sisters need to live. My mother needs to live. I want to breathe. I want to breathe. Uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. Well, in the Golden State, more than 780 have died due to the coronavirus. And as tragic as any and all loss of life is, and it sure is, that figure is astonishingly low. Every death is important and tragic, but they've had only two. They've broken out the windows here. You can see what's left behind of this glass, the glass partition that separates the street. Another large object just thrown there at CNN. This is our home, Chris, you know. This is where we come to work every day. Journalists who are trying to tell the truth. Imagine what, I, what the pain and the frustration is in my mind right now. Because my daughters are seeing police punch on them and slam them to the ground and we ain't getting no justice. Right. And we as fathers are starting to feel hopeless. And when we feel hopeless, we retaliate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're not giving us no answers, we got to come up with our own answers. Mm -hmm. I don't have no more tears, honestly. I've cried enough. I've cried enough. I'm here for one reason, for my brother's honor. He was murdered in broad daylight for the world to see, and nobody's in jail. Mm -hmm. Nobody's in jail. I'm Shania. I'm Leora. And this is the Expanding Economics Podcast. International despair surrounding anti-black racism and police brutality continues to grow in response to the senseless murders of Ahmed Abri, Yassid Muhammad, Priyona Taylor, Tony McDade, George Floyd, Regis Kochinsky Paquette, and far too many others. Expanding Economics wishes to express our solidarity with the black community, black students, and the Black Lives Matter movement. We started this podcast because we felt frustrated that mainstream economic theory not only glosses over but also legitimizes social injustice and economic inequality, which dominantly falls upon the shoulders of black indigenous people of color. We aren't here to armchair philosophize about theoretical failures of social representation in textbooks. This shit is real and is happening. Certain mainstream media outlets and government officials have recently made pretty clear that our social institutions value money and private property over human life. In particular, black lives, the elderly, and those living on the margins of society. There's no question that every single death is tragic, but also the, the destruction of the American economy is tragic. We can't lose our whole country. We, we're having an economic collapse. I'm also a small businessman. I understand it. Uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Don't do that.
In this two-part episode, we'll first discuss how the economy became a societal focus, resulting in a lack of consideration for social structures and economic theory. For this first segment, we've interviewed Birch Kostem, a PhD candidate in the communications department at McGill, who researches how the conditions of possibility that create neoliberalism also creates the possibility for fascist movements, particularly in Turkey. In part two, we will discuss how mainstream economics fails to recognize social disparity and directly perpetuates racist outcomes for groups frequently facing discrimination. Joel Gamble, the principal of reimagining capitalism at Umidyar Network, will talk about how our economy disproportionately burdens the black community, which has been laid bare in crisis conditions. Before we get into Birch's interview, I thought it would be important to let you know that this interview was recorded in early May before the spring of protests started in the U.S. as a response to ongoing anti-Black racism and police brutality. So if it sounds like we're not addressing the prescient international conversation, it is due to the timing of this interview. Also, a few times throughout the interview, Birch talks about CERB. For those living outside of Canada, CERB is the acronym for Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which is Canada's temporary social security program for Canadian residents facing unemployment due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Without further ado, let's start the show. thing that I'm hoping to look at in this episode is when we began to speak about and understand the economy as a distinct social sphere. Yeah, so the economy really emerges in the, uh, in the first half of the 20th century as distinct from economy overall. I mean, political economists began using the concept of economy more generally in the 18th, 19th century. And there it means something like frugality, it means economy of means, it means uh, a distribution of resources. But the idea that there is a distinct social sphere called the economy comes up in the first half of the 20th century. Now, I want to like take a step back and like say, the economy doesn't exist when you think about it. There is no object out there in the world called the economy. I'm not saying that just to be like a snarky grad student. <laughs> I think intuitive way in which the economy doesn't exist because like there's no object in the world out there that we can point to called the economy. And also like people don't agree with one another as to what such an object could be. Economists don't agree with one another as to what such an object could be. I mean, I know economists don't even agree whether you can draw like an aggregate demand curve or not. So uh, economists don't agree. And also, like, workers don't agree whether the economy exists or not. You have all kinds of work that's excluded and included from the category of the economy. Very famously, housework, for example, is usually not included within the context of the economy, even though if it didn't take place, literally you couldn't reproduce work, which means you couldn't reproduce the economy. I'm just going to also clarified when you talk about reproduction reproduction is not just a uh, human reproduction of like birth but it is the reproduction of capitalism and the reproduction of capitalist society that defines how we subsist ourselves totally but also the economy then has to be made through particular social political technical arrangements 
And I think when I say that the economy emerges in the 1940s, 1930s, 1920s, what I mean to say is that the kind of systems, the technical systems, uh, the knowledge production, the expertise systems, the power relations that produce this idea of an independent sphere called the economy emerges in the 1930s, 1940s. If the economy doesn't necessarily exist, what are people referring to when they talk about the economy? When I say the economy doesn't exist, I'm like being cheeky a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Because obviously the economy does exist. There are like uh, all these ways of like measuring the economy, right? There's a GDP, there's the purchasing power parity, there's like, you know, employment levels, right? These are all things that have to do with this uh, sphere called the economy. Then the question maybe is not necessarily whether the economy exists or not, but how does it come into being? With what power relations, with what institutions do we come to like separate this distinct sphere called the economy as opposed to the social, the cultural, the political, right? One thing that this makes me think of immediately like is Timothy Mitchell's very, very famous book, Rule of Experts, Colonialism in Egypt. And one thing that he points to there is how the economy comes into being through these institutions such as you know, statistical bodies, government bodies, bureaucrats that kind of measure and try to record human activity uh, through this metric called the economy. The economy comes into being then as almost like this surface of recording you can think about that kind of organizes human relations in a certain way and through that organization can like reintervene in human activity. So very simple example. We use the economy to measure productivity and to measure labor. Uh, now, in a, in a material sense, in a hospital, for example, this measure uh, called the economy kind of looks at the value of uh, a nurse's labor time versus the value of an administrator's labor time. So the economy records this, right? It says this nurse's labor is worth this much and this administrator's labor is worth this much. But then now that you've got that recording surface, you can go back to policymakers and say, well, we should enact this kind of policy in order to cut nurses' benefits more and uh, increase administrators' fees uh, so as to benefit them more, right? So it's a very interesting artifact. It's both a surface of recording that kind of records human relations, but then with that artifact, you can intervene in society and rearrange human relations as well. So thinking about the economy as this like surface of recording that is made by expertise, made by knowledge producers and all these like bodies like NGOs, the World Bank, IMF, uh, you know, government statistical organizations, all these like institutions kind of make the economy what it is as an object of power and an object of knowledge. And I think like one important name to mention here, of course, is uh, John Maynard Keynes, right? Uh, the guy that came up with the, the idea of the economy, the macroeconomy, as like a specific sphere of human relations that's distinct from the economic relation would be between two people, for example, right? The idea of an aggregate demand, that's like a distinct sphere of action. And I think this really speaks to like those three features, like Keynes's work in particular speaks to three features of the economy that Mitchell points to. 
the idea that it's statistically calculable. So the economy is like the most material aspect of human relations, but it has to be statistically calculable. The idea that it's distinct from other spheres of activity, and also the fact that it's internally dynamic. As demand goes up, supply reacts. Things respond to one another. Yeah, so I would say as an object of knowledge, the economy uh, gets made through those power relations and expertise. You did touch on the material impacts of framing the economy in policy and like how that translates into workers' lived realities. Um, but I was wondering if there are any further implications of framing the economy as a separate sphere. Yeah, I mean, it has, I think, profound implications in terms of how we think about work, how we think about productivity, how we think about how society ought to be organized in the first place, because it kind of removes certain concerns from political, cultural intervention. Uh, one thing that has been going on that I've been like, kind of following is this cost-benefit analysis that some economists are now doing uh, with regards to how long uh, the lockdown should be. There is this very famous Obama-era uh, advisor, Cass Sunstein, uh, who uh, came up with this concept of the nudge. But that book aside, he kind of uh, insisted this time around that there, sh- there should be a cost-benefit analysis about how long this shutdown should last. And how do you do a cost-benefit analysis of that? Well, you need to value, you need to assign a value to human life, right? Uh, And not individual life, but they call it value of statistical life. Uh, And in case you're wondering, it's $10 million, uh, the measure they're using. But so that's really interesting, right? It's removing a set of concerns saying, okay, there's like political concerns here, cultural concerns. But it wants to like remove those aside and say, well, there's actually an economic concern here. Uh, how long should the shutdown last versus how many people are we going to let die, basically? Uh, and that's like a very, <laughs> that's a very dark thing. Yeah, I guess in relation to coronavirus, uh, there's been a really big discussion in the media and also coming from governments pitting the economy against public health. Yeah. Um, and some governments are prioritizing the economy. So when did that begin to happen where the economy was put first, or I guess whose interests do we prioritize when we put the economy first? And does that have positive implications on human well-being in any way? One one thing I could say is that I don't think this is necessarily new. Uh, When you think about it, uh, programs like social welfare, programs like, uh, like all kinds of public health programs are there instituted by the state in order to make the labor force uh, uh, productive to a certain extent. And uh, social welfare isn't just there because states are great and they think that, you know, we need happy people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also there in order to make uh, workers more productive. And I think there's an interesting tension here uh, between capital and capitalism because When you think about it, and maybe this is where the concept of the economy kind of obscures this kind of tension, because when you think about it, there's like the interest of financial capital is not necessarily aligned with the interest of industrial capital. There's a way in which stock markets are doing, are handling the crisis differently. The job of the state then, right, is to like harmonize these interests 
traditionally, this has been the job of the states, is to harmonize these, uh, these interests and deal out public health and deal out social welfare according to that. I, w- I would say there's a way in which uh, the concerns of public health has always been hand in hand with the concerns of capital. The public health and the economy do go hand in hand, but they have been distinguished quite frequently in the past few months. Yeah. Would you say that this distinction is relevant? And I guess, does that kind of bring into question what the economy is, if it's not necessarily serving the public interest? Yeah, I mean, uh, the idea that there is a distinct sphere called the economy is not serving the public interest, in my belief, at all. But I think that th- the idea that now people are saying the economy is op- opposed to public health, from my perspective, is like indicative of another thing. For me, it indicates that the economy as this like sphere of expertise and knowledge doesn't cohere in the same way. And I think this kind of move actually started all the way back in 2008. There is, um, if you remember, after the 2008 crisis happened, the Queen kind of sent this letter to uh, the top economists in the UK being like, what happened? How, how is it that no one could foresee this crisis? But what that actually does is really like shock the, uh, the credibility of economics as a profession. Uh, David Graeber wrote a piece last year, I think it, maybe it was this year, the New York Review of Books called Against Economics. And he kind of had this thing about how economics was like the science that was originally intended for much different uh, purposes and that it could no longer so- serve the current social welfare. And I, and I think there's a way in which that's true. And not only is that true, I think a lot of people know that to be true. If you think about it in the last election cycle, we had like a stage of democratic candidates. And a lot of them actually said, no, I don't think GDP correlates with public wealth. Now, that's on the one hand, a good thing, right? That's great. Yes, people see it. But also, it's a moment in which we should take back a step and say, okay, there's like economy as like this object of knowledge, but there's also economy as this like object of affect and anxiety. And I think that's the sense in which the economy still exists in our minds, right? We still Mm -hmm. all collectively believe in this object that's going to like uh, save us somehow or that's going to like, you know, bind our futures. Would you be able to elaborate a little on how the economy is a source of public affect and maybe define what you mean by affect for the listeners that don't know. Sure. Um, basically means something like collective feeling. I mean, that's a, maybe a simplistic way to put it, but I, I mean something like a public feeling. So you might ask, how is that the case? And I think one very obvious way in which that's the case is that the economy actually runs on, among other things, among people's labors, among people's like actual work, It also runs on people's collective orientations towards the future. It runs on people's social and collective orientations towards how they relate to one another and what they expect the future will be. I mean, Keynes actually captures this beautifully. He has like an essay on general employment and he says, it's time that we admit that fear, anxiety, hope, all of those things are just as important economic factors as, you know, employment is. The other thing I'll say about like how much uh, the economy as like an object of expertise doesn't cohere anymore. It's not true to say that it doesn't exist, because there are like economists, there are like institutions, and they do get paid a lot of money. So they, they do exist. 
but it doesn't add up together, I don't think, in the way it used to. If there was like a world that the economy had like framed into a picture, there are like cracks in the frame. We maybe talked a bit about this earlier, but why is it that when people can't contribute to GDP, they yeah. have to starve? The thing that makes the coronavirus pandemic such a disaster is not necessarily the deaths from the disease itself, but there will also be a huge economic shock in the aftermath of people not like millions of people not being able to work and people starving because they have no source of income. So how did that become the case where people rely on the support of like upholding capitalist production in order to survive? Yeah, no, that's a great question. How did it come to be that that the only way people can have sustenance, right, uh, and subsistence is through work? We all have like UBI and SARB. Is it SARB now? SARB? Yes. SARB? SARB? SARB. Yes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) For a long time, right, there's this project to kind of e-link work from, from subsistence. One of the important projects of social emancipation was to make it so that how you work and how you subsist aren't necessarily linked to one another. And I think that's a really important goal. But I think, and there's, I think it is true that, I mean, it's partly conspiracy, but one reason that there's such a pressure right now, for example, to like get people back into work uh, is that they maybe are reluctant to let people get used to this idea that government can provide subsistence for people. I mean, when you think about it, uh, I have heard that the money you get from SARB is actually like better than the money you get on like disability benefits. And uh, in order to get disability welfare, you have to endure constant harassment and checking by the police. So the idea that this money was not providable before turns out to be like kind of bullshit. Right? <laughs> yeah. Which is like really a radical situation that we're in right now. But I want to like take a step back and I, and, and I want to say like things like SARB and UBI doesn't actually kind of change the fact that rent and labor and sustenance, is, rent and labor specifically are still commodified. So, so to participate in the system of social production uh, and social value, you still have to buy and sell commodities and specifically sell your labor. So I, I see the project of like decommodifying stuff as different than the project of giving people money, which I mean, they're not necessarily opposed. It's just like a different kind of project. Uh, now to get back to your actual question about work, how did it come to be the case? People need to work in order to sustain their daily lives. I'll kind of step back and say a couple of things. First, there's the material conditions of that. I mean, you know, the classic Marxist thing of like the central myth of capitalism is this, he calls it like a spontaneous ideology of capital, is when the laborer and the capitalist meet at the marketplace as if they were equals, right? Under this formal equality. And the basic premise behind that, I should elaborate a little bit more uh, for our listeners, is that the laborer has no means of sustenance left through this like historical process of, you know, primitive accumulation, Marx calls it, but this historical process of lands being enclosed, right? The means of production, so like technologies being monopolized under company ownership, 
financial means being seized, you know, all the gold that was stolen from uh, indigenous lands around the world. Through that process of colonialism, there emerges this kind of myth uh, whereby you have nothing left to sell but your labor, right? If you're not working for a company, you are typically either in grad school like me or, <laughs> or imprisoned for some reason, incarcerated, or uh, locked down in some kind of other institution, right? Institutionalized for another reason, or unemployed and uh, not able to sustain yourself, right? Sustain your basic life. So there's this situation where the worker has to sell uh, his or her labor and the capitalist has the option of investing or not. But they meet under the marketplace under this like formal equality, this spontaneous ideology of free markets and Bentham and God and all of liberalism and all, of, uh, all that other stuff, uh, as Marx himself describes it. So there, there's, there's that kind of myth of equality. But I think there's also the financial aspect, too, where the very idea of money creates this uh, illusion whereby a difference in quality, the difference between my ability to uh, invest and sustain my life, because the wages I'm getting or like uh, the money I'm getting for, from grad school, I have to use to sustain myself, right? I don't have the money to invest in stock options. Whereas the capitalist does have the money to invest in stock options. So the, the very money that we have, right, wage money versus capital, are different kinds of money. It's a difference in quality. But what money does is transforms that into a difference in quantity. It's not that you and your boss receive different kinds of money. It's just so happens to be that your boss has more of what you already have. So if you only worked hard enough, if you only like put in the grit and the determination, and if you were only so disciplined as to work hard enough, you too could become a boss one day. And I think that kind of ideology of work really stems from this myth of equality. And I think this is even more true with the gig economy stuff, because when you think about the gig economy, uh, there's the sense in which like, oh, anybody can become a YouTube star. Anybody can have their own car and become an Uber driver. And I think there's even like a sense of material change here. You, yeah, you do own your laptop. You do own your computer. You don't own the databases that organize that production and you know, uh, spread it in a particular way. But this idea that only if you have enough grit, you too can make it, I think still kind of like drives a lot of the ideology of work. This is a big part of the kind of material conditions of work. And here I'm drawing, I should acknowledge my uh, resources among other people. Kathy Weeks is The Problem with Work, as well as this book called The Micropolitics of Capital by Jason Lee. But yeah, so that's like kind of the material conditions. But on top of that, right, there's also the kind of ideology of work. What Kathy Weeks describes as like the work ethic. And I think this is really important as well, because she says, well, the, the work ethic is like this moral, social, cultural system whereby work is individualized, right? Whether you work or not is a function of your moral self-worth. It's not a political problem. It's not a social problem. It's about whether as an individual are, uh, have enough determination. Work also creates subjects, right? Uh, it's a subjectivizing force in the sense that 
when I say work creates subjects, what I mean is work really helps you define your sense of moral worth and who you are, and in very gendered and racial ways. So what kind of job you do, what kind of relations you're able to acquire in a work environment really kind of defines your social status and sense of uh, self-worth. That makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. (laughs) Bringing that back to the current context, when people are barred from being able to participate in that, I guess, form of identification, but also form of subsistence, like it, it did become a question of identification and of various other things over time. But now we're back to a point where people are barred from participating in the economy as a social sphere, like people are unable to create an income. So this is, I guess, the first massive shock in the height of the gig economy. And by shock, I mean like a disruption to the regular labor cycles and like abilities to earn income. Why is this event perceived as a shock and why does it lead to economic collapse and does it have to necessarily? Yeah, no, that's that's a very interesting question. But one thing I'll say is like, it's interesting that it is a shock because there are, I mean, epidemiologists, there are scientists, if you go back, I mean, I didn't know this, right? I don't want to like pretend like I'd known this all along, but there are people who've been working on this and who explain to you how the prevalence of massive agriculture eats into people's ability to have sustenance, right? Subsistence, how that kind of uh, creates the conditions of a of a pandemic very easily. I mean, there is a book by Rob Wallace called Big Farms Make Big Flu that's become very popular now. One of the points he makes in the interviews he gives is that the prevalence of, you know, uh, industrial agriculture precisely by, you know, capturing land, accumulating land, depriving indigenous peoples around the world of the means of having their own agricultural production of, or having their own farming production by industrializing all of that and by capturing all of that actually pushes people out to turn towards what are considered exotic or wild animals. Uh, and that kind of creates its own kind of economy. So that's very interesting to me because we have like a kind of what some Marxists call a kind of metabolism at place. We have a certain division of labor whereby production is organized industrially. And this division of labor creates an economy, right? It creates the the agricultural economy that we know. Uh, And also it creates kind of nature, right? It creates a metabolism of nature where you have extreme industrialized monocultural production on one hand, and you have this like what are called exotic meats on the other. So in the very like production of the virus, I think there, there are ways in which this kind of question of was this predictable, could this have been foreseen, kind of comes up, right? So all that to say, on the one hand, it's not like impossible if you're an expert, not that like experts know everything, but it's not impossible for this to have been foreseen. And the fact that there have been so many viruses in the past kind of shows you that, oh, you know, there's some structural conditions that's repeating this kind of phenomenon. But why it's why it couldn't be fixed is an altogether interesting and different question, right? Why couldn't it have been organized otherwise? Gets you back into the kind of ideology of work that we talked about, right? The ideology that everything has to go through production, everything has to go through efficiency, 
everything has to be organized in a way that pushes everyone to work all the time. How do you think we can get away from that type of framing of work? Actually, uh, I wanted to, uh, I'm being a little cheeky here, <laughs> but I saw in your notes that you were kind of thinking about this uh, idea of automation. I think you said fully automated luxury communism. Yes, uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I have kind of mm. like a bone to pick with it. Maybe I'll be a bit more uh, respectful about this. But one thing that I'll say, I mean, the kind of thing that makes me concerned about this kind of rhetoric is that like, I think, I think it's important to decouple work from productivity, right? I think it's important to uh, organize society through other principles than just, you know, growth, productivity, and work. So it's not so mm -hmm. much that we need to uh, get rid of work. There needs to be labor. I think there's a William Morris quote that is very famous. Uh, he says, people get like, genuine joy uh, through the expenditure of energies, right? So like, I don't want to say that work is a bad thing. I do think that society ought to be organized through means other than work. What I'm kind of suspicious of is this idea will have wage labor as it stands, uh, will have scientific managerialism as it stands, but will have it for two, three hours a week. And then for the rest of the week, will be like just enjoying endless kind of pleasure and hedonistic, you know, whatever, which is important. I think pleasure is great. I love pleasure. <laughs> and I think that's important too. But I don't think that kind of gets you out of the productivist mindset where the goal is still maximization and you haven't really touched how labor itself, how the labor process is itself organized. You haven't really changed our relation to technology. Still, we have a relation to technology of like master versus slavery. You're either like lords over technology or you're the slaves of technology. You're, you haven't changed the wage relation, right? You haven't changed the fact that there are bosses and there are workers. So the idea that like you can just automate production away doesn't really address what principles should society be organized along. I'm all for saying that capitalism has inefficiencies uh, and, you know, society could be organized another way. But for me, the question is like, how do you distribute inefficiencies differently? Because every society is going to have an efficiency. So the question is how more just and beautiful and, you know, uh, caring and loving a society could we have if we distributed our inefficiencies differently? God, I sound like a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> but I think like this kind of, Kind of unfortunate because in this kind of moment, cultural moment, we have this idea that we could only work for a couple of hours a day and the rest of it will be automated. Isn't the current moment we're in just proof that this could work? And my thing is like, one, you're assuming that automation necessarily creates less work. That isn't the case. There are all kinds of care work and reproductive labor that isn't easily automatable. Some jobs maybe aren't easily automatable. And maybe sometimes we don't need automation for them. And two, it assumes that automation is socially and ecologically desirable and internationally desirable. I mean, a lot of times automation relies on consuming a lot of energy, which is like mined and extracted from around the world, uh, recreating all kinds of international inequality. And three, the, the real question, I guess, is that it doesn't force us to like 
think of other principles through which social production and labor and care and social processes ought to be organized besides work. So automation could or could not happen. My problem is we can't just automate away work and de delegate it to something else. We need to think of other principles through which society is going to be organized aside mm -hmm. from work. There's a question that David Graeber asks that I really like. He's like, how would society look like if we thought of as the main thing society did if we replaced production with care? Rather than producing stuff, what if the economy, we could uh, kind of rethink it as the means through which we care for one another? And I think like at this moment, in fact, what we're going through is a crisis of care. So the pandemic is framed as an exogenous shock to the economy and yeah. um, I guess an exogenous shock if you, well, first of all, the opposite of an exogenous shock is an endogenous shock, which is a shock to the economic system that was internally created usually by banks or uh, finance. So an example would be the 2008 recession or the depression in the 1930s. Those were both caused by the financial system. This shock to the economy is not caused by the financial system. It's caused by, I guess, environmental factors and social factors that led to putting economic activity or I guess the exchange of production and services and goods on hold. So when did economists begin to distinguish between exogenous and endogenous shocks? Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know the like, precise economic history behind that. Yeah. I, I can say that like the way like a Marxist theory would talk about this, uh, there are these two Italian Marxist philosophers called uh, Michael Hart and Tony Negri, and uh, they have this book called Commonwealth, where they really like grapple a little bit with this idea of not endogenous versus exogenous, but internality versus externality. And one thing to say is like this idea of an externality is precisely like a way of, uh, remember we talked about the economy as like this frame that the economy has used to like frame the world in a certain way. This distinction between internality versus externality is precisely that frame, right? Endogenous risks versus exogenous risks is that is the making of that frame right it's saying some relations are internal to the economy other relations are external to the economy so there's like something political there too but i think another way to think about this that i found helpful is the distinction between capital and capitalism the uh, 2008 recession or the great depression right these are things that emerge through capital's process of accumulation itself so there's a way in which capital valorizes itself, meaning increases its own value through capturing labor force, through extracting minerals, but also through speculation. And there's a crisis in that uh, so-called crisis in the 1970s of the wage. And that kind of crisis of the wage, too, is a crisis that uh, emerges through capital's ability to appropriate more surplus. I think that's a better way of thinking of endogenous. And another a better way, I think, of uh, thinking of exogenous is to think of capitalism as a system. And capitalism as a system, or like as a process, let's say, the process is a better way of thinking about it, because it's more open, right? Capitalism mm -hmm. as a process then refers to the conditions of possibility of this uh, thing called capital to valorize itself, right? To increase its value. 
So the conditions of possibility include, you know, ecological conditions, social relations, technological relations, all the relations that reproduce capital in the first place, right? So if capitalism is this like general fear of social and ecological and natural and technological relations, and capital is like what's being reproduced and valorized there. And I think this kind of distinction is helpful because rather than saying there's an exogenous versus an indigenous, we're able to say there's a crisis of reproduction. There's a crisis of capitalism's ability to reproduce its own conditions of possibility. And I think that kind of crisis cuts through the ecological crisis, through the women's movement, through the LGBTQ movement, through this current crisis that we're in as well. And I, and I think thinking of it as like a crisis of reproduction really helps kind of tie those things together that I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I guess... I do prefer that framing because I kind of associated, I also associated exogenous and endogenous with like internality and externality and framing events as external to the economy when obviously, how can we say that this pandemic is external to the economy if this is the biggest depression our society has faced potentially ever or at least in our generation? So what would it mean if we were to stop thinking about shocks, any sort of shock as exogenous? And how can we prepare for future shocks to the economy that will not be caused by the financial system, which, will, which is a big question totally. that we should think about with uh, the climate crisis. Totally, totally. No, I think uh, thinking of it uh, as a crisis of reproduction uh, versus a crisis of like uh, exogenous factors helps you pay attention to, to care work, to pr- processes of reproduction through processes of ecological reproduction, through processes of like human reproduction, through uh, to reproductive labor, right? And I think those are the stakes of mm-hmm. saying it's not exogenous. It's, it's not a process of capital accumulation per se, but it is a process of capital's reproduction. Kind of helps you say, no, this is like an economic issue, although maybe it's not like part of the economy per se. And I think like this kind of framework actually also lets you see how the COVID crisis itself is produced within conditions of capitalism, right? All the stuff I talked about, you know, agricultural farming and creation of capitalist natures, you know, you can also include within this framework cutting of, you know, austerity that we've been subject to since 2008, the the latest cycle of austerity. That kind of set the conditions for the current COVID crisis to be what it is. I mean, think of how the crisis would have unfolded if the U.S. did have a public health care system, right? So all that to say, like, no crisis is exogenous. They're all socially produced. That's not to say that they're not real, but they exist within historical, social, political, ecological conditions that are all produced, right? Mm-hmm. To say it's exogenous, in my mind, says, oh, it's not, you know, we don't have responsibility for it. Who could have known? Well, there's a way in which everybody saw this coming, actually. <laughs> there's a, it's a wonderful little uh, sticker that, shout out to one of my props, Darren Barney, has on his door. It's not about this particular crisis, but it says, we've all seen this coming. Okay, I think we're getting towards the end uh-huh. of the interview, I guess. Is there anything that you want the listeners to know? I guess, like, one thing to think about, like, more practically, besides everything that we've spoken, is how to get involved right now, wherever you are, with whatever like local mutual aid system or 
care system that you find. I know that's not like very satisfying or heroic or like, you know, fulfilling maybe, but I think sometimes, you know, crises aren't satisfying. They don't lead to political kind of resolutions or revolts, unfortunately. And I think there's something to be valued and valorized about, uh, you know, taking care of your neighborhood, your local municipality, getting involved with politics there. So I urged all, uh, all, all listeners to do that. Yeah, I think I remember, it's just been reiterated where people say that this will change everything and it will change uh, society and the world and our social structures. But then I remember I I was listening to a different show and one person commented on the fact that society has faced many atrocities and and that, that does lead to many changes. But also, I guess, one, people tend to forget trauma and pain as kind of a biological response and to yeah it's it's kind of surprising how quickly we can bounce back from these kind of really huge shifts even though they seem permanent it's not necessarily the case that much will come out of uh, in terms of social change will come out of uh, what we currently face so yeah it's the the only really path to change is kind of putting in the legwork definitely i mean if if there's one thing to be learned from this is that crises aren't immediately, automatically political. and You need to work to make them political. You need to work to um, create the conditions of their politicization. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think what you said is really important. I think there's like, it's easy to underestimate the kind of emotional investment people have in the idea of normalcy, right? And even if things don't go back to normal, which like, I don't even know what that means, right? I think things will change because that's how history works. But that doesn't mean that it won't feel normal, right? So I think that's the worst outcome in, in a sense that things, get, things stay the same, but they get a little bit shittier. And we all continue to have this like investment in normalcy. Yeah, I think, I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, uh, same. Birch, thank you so much for coming on, for talking to me today. That was very insightful and I'm sure everyone listening will learn a lot from what you just said. Thank you. Thank you so much. This episode of the Expanding Economics podcast is produced by Leora Schertzer and Shania Dessa with support from CKUT 90.3 FM on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Editing and original sound effects by Leora Schertzer, with editing assistance by Ben Bullert and Alexandra Demos. Music by Ross Graham and Blear Moon. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Expanding Economics. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or topic requests for this economically precarious time, you can get in touch via email at expandingecon.mtl at rethinkeconomics.org. If you want to read more about our greater mission and are curious about heterodox economics, you can check out the website of our affiliated network, rethinkeconomics.org. In the next episode of our two-part series on the role of the economy in serving public interest, you will hear from Joelle Gamble. You know, utility functions and just being confused. I was like, this doesn't describe my life. But we never ask ourselves, you know, is this the right welfare function? We only ask ourselves, what are the policies that help us maximize this function? And that's not quite the right way to look at it if you're actually trying to think about, you know, things beyond utility that affect how people make decisions. 
you know, an assumption that I think is really important that folks make in mainstream economics about racism is that racism is somehow irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, that when people are acting in a perfectly rational manner, you know, will will get rid of racism because it's illogical. It's, ir- it's irrational to discriminate. Until next time.